Brad Hannock. Thank you, Marty Buck. Fellow students, if you would open to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, last week, remember, we went through the church at Ephesus. We're in the middle of a series through Revelation. Lord willing, we'll be here through the end of the year and perhaps a little bit beyond because we want to complete Revelation in a, in a not just a timely fashion, but a, a fairly in-depth fashion. Today, we're going to be talking about the church of Smyrna. Remember, we said in Revelation 1 that John had a vision of the glorified Christ. And after that vision, he was told to write the things which he had seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapter 2 and 3, and the things which shall be, which is chapter 4 through 22. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, are the, are the letters that Jesus Christ himself wrote to his churches. There were seven churches we talked about. The church at Ephesus was the first one we did last week. If you recall, the church at Ephesus looked like a fabulous church from the outside in. They had done everything pretty well on target, but their one great call to conviction and conversion and repentance was what? You have left your first love. That was the MO from Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, calling them back to himself. Today we're going to take a look at the second church, which is the message to the church at Smyrna. And one of the ideas that we need to remind ourselves today of is that this church is the persecuted church. This church is really the martyr church. This church is the, um, contains the message for every believer who has been suffering, every believer who has encountered pain, and every believer in a church that has been persecuted in every culture. Uh, this church is under intense fire for lots and lots of reasons, which we're going to jump into right now. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, remember we said last week that the word angel, angelos, comes from the word messenger. Highly likely that the angel of each of these churches was in fact the pastor, was the teacher, was the leader of that particular church. Now the name of the city, remember we said that when Jesus wrote letters to each of his churches, he identifies himself and he identifies the name of the church, and each of the names of the churches has a specific meaning that's highly relevant to the message he's going to give them. If you recall last week, the name Ephesus means darling, maiden of choice, beloved, which was a view that Jesus Christ had toward his church, his bride, his body. The name Smyrna from the Greek means myrrh, means bitter which gives you an idea when we talk about the suffering church, the name itself is an idea of that. The city of Smyrna, remember, is located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. These are All these churches are on the eastern shores of Turkey, western Turkey, modern-day Anatolia. It's near the Aegean Sea. During John's day, this was a very, very, very popular city, about 100,000 people at that point, which was a lot of bodies in John's era. Remember that Jesus had promised Ephesus what? If they did not repent, what was he going to do? Remove their lampstand. How many of you have ever been to Ephesus? Anybody taken a trip to Ephesus? Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Is there a lot of people living in Ephesus? There's nobody living in Ephesus. So if, in fact, Ephesus is ruins, what can you conclude about what Jesus Christ did to their lampstand? removed it so you can conclude that at some point in time this thriving church called Ephesus failed to come back to their first love right now in contrast to Ephesus Smyrna today is the third largest city in Turkey it's called Izmir 
There's 2.8 million people in Izmir. Out of the seven churches that Jesus wrote specific letters to, Izmir is the only city that is still extant. All the others are ruins. The other interesting thing about this particular letter to Smyrna is that it is the uh, shortest of all the letters. Jesus did not write a lot of words to this church, but he wrote very, very, very powerful words to this church. This particular geographical area where Smyrna is located, the current city of Izmir in Turkey, has been inhabited for over 4,000 years. Very, very solid geography. It's built on the uh, slope of the Mount Pegos, and there was a Hittite civilization there that we're uncovering now that's over 4,000 years old. Over 4,000 years old. So there's been a lot of activity there. Smyrna actually was a colony of Greece as far back as 1,000 BC. So it's been populated for a long time. Around 600 BC, it was invaded by the Lydians and completely destroyed. So the city was literally out of existence and it existed as a series of villages for about 400 years. So the city literally had died. Alexander the Great came along in around 330, 333 and conceived a master plan to rebuild the city from the ground up because it had never recovered from the Lydian invasion. So when you look at this city, it's modern day Irvine, California. What do you know about Irvine, California? It was a master plan. <laughs> okay, can't afford it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Irvine was very famous a number of years ago. It was one of the first master plan communities. The entire town from from soup to nuts was laid out from scratch. This city had done the same thing. Alexander laid out a master plan for the boulevards, the sewers, the water, the architecture. Everything in the city was designed from scratch and it was rebuilt. The streets were broad, well paved. They were laid out at right angles. Many of those streets were named after temples. It was really a cosmopolitan area, but they had a couple problems. Uh, the, the plain down by the sea, because it was built on the side of a hill, Mount Pegos, the, the, the plain down by the sea was too low to drain. So in rainy weather, the bottom of the city was just mud, just covered with mud. And the other of their problems is, is like most cities of that era, they drained their sewage where? Into the harbor, which is really good, providing you have an east wind to take it out to sea. But there's a prevailing west wind. So you drained it into the harbor and it blew it right back into the harbor, right? So it was, yeah, there was a little odiferous there from time to time. So just to give you an idea, um, in about 197 BC, Smyrna cut their ties with the Greeks. They'd been a colony of Greece and they made a conscious decision as a city-state to ally themselves with Rome. And at that point in time, something very effective for them happened, but something very destructive for the church, they began the worship of the pagan goddess Roma which was the goddess of Rome at that point in time. Smyrna is one of the most beautiful cities you will ever see. If you want to see it, Google Izmir, Turkey, and you will see the geography of this city. It was a gorgeous place. It was called the Crown City. It was called the Flower of Asia. The Acropolis on top of Mount Pagos had multiple temples, flowers, hedges, myrtle trees. The streets went around the city just like a strand of necklace around a neck. So it was literally called the Flower of Asia at that point. A beautiful, beautiful place. Unfortunately, the city's built near earthquake fault lines. So it's had multiple earthquakes and has been rebuilt a lot of times. What makes it so popular is it has one of the most protected harbors. Rob, I, sorry, I should have told you to put a map up, my fault. 
It has a very, very protected harbor. There's about a 35-mile arm of the sea that flows along and goes inland, and it's a very, very wonderful port. It's still the third largest port in that whole region, and I think it's the number one port for, um, for Turkey. And the port ends right in the center of town, so it was a big, big shipping, shipping area, so it was a very wealthy city. The, 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 the finances of Smyrna were largely funded by the production of myrrh. Myrrh was their chief export. It was the number one thing they produced. Myrrh means bitter, and it came to be associated with suffering and associated with death. Uh, it was used as a perfume for the living and an anointing oil for the dying, for the dead. It was used as a medicine. You could actually drink myrrh. Myrrh was very bitter, but if you cut it with a lot of wine, you could swallow it, and it was medicinal at that point. So it was a very, very effective uh, aromatic spice used for lots and lots of stuff. Interesting, when you wanted to harvest myrrh, you tapped a tree by cutting it with a knife or a small axe and so that you, it bled. It would bleed this waxy resin. And uh, think of a maple syrup tree. You know, when you, when you go to the New England and they tap a maple syrup tree, the tree bleeds maple syrup. And you put it in a bottle. You know, you, it, it, needs, it, it bleeds, but you have to boil it and boil it and boil it and boil it to get rid of a lot of the liquid to get that point. But you would tap the tree by cutting it the tree would suffer and bleed this waxy resin, and you would let it dry on the tree. And that waxy resin would harden, and they would pluck it off the branch, and they called it tears, right? It looked like tears on your cheeks. It was on the branch. And that was the myrrh itself. It would harden up at that point. We know about myrrh because in Matthew 2, the wise men brought what to the baby Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in John 19, we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So it was their number one export. It's also intriguing that Jesus, the Lord of the church, writes a letter to a church under very bitter persecution, whose name itself means bitter, bitter. The application for us is not lost um, I know many of us in this room have experienced bitterness, bitter circumstances, bitter people. Um, as Pastor Roger said, the storms of life spare no one. The storms will come. It's only a question of when. And the storms do not make your foundation. They merely expose the fact that you have one or you don't have one. This church was in the middle of a major storm, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. This was a very, very religious city. There were multiple temples. They had temples to Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo. Very polytheistic city, very pagan city. Uh, it was also a free city. A free city in the Roman Empire meant that you had the right of self-governance. Remember last week we said Ephesus had the right of self-governance as well, which means there were no Roman soldiers garrisoned in that city. You, were, you had the right of self-governance. Uh, Smyrna wisely as a city had always been on the winning side in every internal conflict in the Roman Empire. Because remember, Rome changed out emperors as soon as they could assassinate one. I mean, there was a lot of turnover in this position. They had one year where they had four of them, and all of them were assassinated. Not this era, but I mean, there, there was a lot of turnover in emperors at that point. So you had to be on the winning side in order to survive. Well, they had been on the winning side, and so therefore they had the right of free governance at that point and self-governance. But they were also very, very loyal to Rome. And they were the ones who started the cult of emperor worship. 
and that was one of the sticking points for this particular church. There was a very, very small church in this city that Jesus Christ know by name, and he wrote him a letter. So if you've ever suffered, Jesus has a word for you today. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, <clears throat> the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, the church in Smyrna we know nothing about except this particular book. It probably was founded by the Ephesian church. It was probably a daughter church of the church at Ephesus. It was extremely dangerous to be a member of this church. Uh, your life was literally on the line on a regular basis. So Jesus is going to identify himself, right? Jesus, every church, Jesus uses a couple of phrases from the description of himself in the first chapter to describe himself to this church. How does he describe himself to this suffering church? He says, to the angel of the church in, in Smyrna write what? The first and the last, right? What's the second description? Who was dead, Who was dead and has come to life. So he's using this description for this church because he knows they need to know that. The first and the last is a direct quote from Isaiah 44. He is emphasizing to this suffering church that he is before all things. He will exist after all things. He has no beginning and no end. The God who has existed forever and will exist forever is writing to them. The God who transcends space and time the God who dwells outside his creation is talking to this church that is in the middle of intense suffering. And he's telling them, earth time does not end with suffering. All time ends with Jesus Christ glorified, yes? Here's the message, and it's a good one. All the suffering that you are going through right now, it has an expiration date. There is an expiration date on the box of suffering that you are now opening or will be open for you, despite your choices. It is all temporary. Testing is temporary. Tribulation is temporary. We must remember that because you know what happens when we get in pain? Our time horizon shrinks, doesn't it? When we get into enough pain, you know what we think about? This instant. And you know what else? We don't think about anybody else. I'm sorry, but pain makes us self-centered. If you put a person in enough pain, they don't even are aware of their surroundings. They're thinking about themselves and their body and their pain. It dominates your world. This church is under the gun. And Jesus says, I want you to have an eternal perspective. I am the first and the last. I dwell outside of time. Your suffering is not going to enter heaven. Suffering hits a do not enter sign when you get to the pearly gates. So this eternal God who dwells outside time entered creation as a man, a baby in Bethlehem. He took on human flesh for the purpose of saving us from suffering and sin. And so he uses the next phrase, the first and the last, who was dead. It's critical you underline the word was, not is, who was dead and has come to life. Now, Smyrna, remember, had been dead for four centuries under Alexander the Great, it literally came to life. They rebuilt it from the ground up. So the city itself had undergone a resurrection of sorts, geographically and cosmopolitan-wise. They would understand the come-to-life bit because this church is in a city that had come back from the dead as well. This church needs to be reminded that Jesus suffered unto death because the church, had the church of Smyrna was being persecuted to death. Jesus is telling this church, I know personally about pain. 
I personally know about suffering. I know life is hard. I know life is unfair. How many of you, when someone says, how are you doing, are going to tell them the truth? The truth of it is most people don't want to know. And when they say life is pretty good, what you can be assured is that they're lying. Hang on, I tricked you. Here's the principle. It's not on the screen. Life is good even when it's hard. If the only time your life is good is when it's not hard, it's not good very often because most of the time life is tough, yes? Even when it's good, it's hard. We live in a broken world. Suffering is normal. I'm sorry, I don't mean to pop your bubble. You all have lived long enough to know that it's absolutely normal. Here's the hope that Jesus said. He says, folks, I've passed into death, through death, and out of death, I've conquered death. You need to know, I was dead and I have come to life. Death could not hold me. I've conquered it. And because I've conquered it, you can live too, right? I've conquered the worst that sin and Satan can throw at me, and I understand that you are in the middle of a firestorm right now, but it's temporary. It's temporary. I want you to think eternally, and that's what he says. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's the key idea. Jesus understands our suffering. And he has conquered death. So we are to do what? Trust him. Yes? Trust him. Trust him. Sometimes when we're in pain, we don't think anybody gets it. How many of you heard the old tune, No One Understands Like Jesus? He's a friend beyond compare. There's a whole lot of stuff in life you can't talk to anybody about but Jesus. Because people may not understand, right? But Jesus does understand. Jesus does understand. He says, the first words out of his mouth, I know, I know, I know your tribulation. Chapter 1 says the glorified Christ has eyes like flames of fire and he sees with x-ray vision. He knows everything about the church and the individual. And he says, I know your trials. I know your tribulations. I know your suffering. Interesting that there's only two churches out of seven that have nothing bad said about them. This is one of them. There is not one negative comment from the Lord of glory about this church. He only has commendation. There is no criticism of this church. It's the model of a suffering church. It's inevitable that faithful Christians suffer for their faith. 2 Timothy 3.12, I would like to modify this. It says, some that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, right? Is that what it says? Well, say that again. All, all that suffer godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, interesting diagnostic question. If no one in this room is suffering persecution, are we in fact living godly in Christ Jesus? If the culture has no cause to criticize us for any reason whatsoever, are we living godly in Christ Jesus? Now, I'm not saying be a, a jerk so you get criticized and say, I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're a jerk. All right? Some people suffer because they, they just, they need to suffer, right? That's how God disciplines them. I get that. You're a jerk, you should get beat. That's right. But if there's never any persecution, 
for righteousness sake, as Jesus said, then am I in fact a light in a dark place? It's been said that the trials of life can make you bitter or better. It doesn't say you can avoid the trials of life. They're going to happen. He uses a very, very intense word. He says, I know your tribulation. Tribulation means pressure. And it refers to a very intense, constant pressure that can lead to death. In Latin, the word tribulum, tribulum, it refers to stone wheels that they use to crush wheat. To separate the seed kernel from the shell, right? You have to separate the seed kernel from the shell. You want a bushel of pure wheat? Crush it. I like that idea, as long as it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> See, when it applies to me, then I'm going, Jesus, is there an easier way to purify my life other than to crush it? I mean, please, right? These Christians in Smyrna were literally having the life squeezed out of them by their persecutors. Satan was trying to squeeze their Christianity out of them by tribulation. First thing they were facing was economic persecution. Jesus says in, in the same verse, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. There are two Greek words for poverty. Penea, P-E-N-I-A, refers to someone who has the bare necessities. I'm poverty-stricken, but I have the bare necessities. I have nothing superfluous. I have nothing extras. I have the basics. Then there's the word I can't pronounce, P-T-W-C-I-A. And it means absolute poverty, complete destitution. Iron poverty, you don't have the basics. You don't have a room over your head. You have no physical wealth at all. Nothing. Remember, they could be denied jobs. They could be enslaved. They could be imprisoned. And some were being murdered and martyred. The second kind of persecution they're facing is governmental persecution because they were in opposition to emperor worship. Remember, in 195 B.C., the city was so pro-Roman that they built a temple to the goddess of Roma, Dia Roma, God Rome, God Rome, right? Now, in our culture, we don't do that. We just have nine uh, attorneys in white robes that tell us what's right and wrong, right? I'm not being facetious. We do need a Supreme Court, but they never determine what's right or wrong. What's right or wrong comes from this book and only this book. They can tell me what the law, what they want to make the law, but don't ever confuse God's law and man's law. Smyrna was being persecuted because the law of Rome said you will worship the emperor. The law of God says you will worship Jesus Christ and him alone. We have a conflict, right? That's why the persecution. So they had the worship of, of Dia Roma, God Rome, and later on Caesar commanded emperor worship as a way to unify the empire. In order to do this, once a year, you had to go to the temple. You had to swear allegiance, and you had to call Caesar Lord. You had to sprinkle incense before his statute, and you got a piece of paper called a certificate that allowed you to get jobs and do business. No certificate? Economic privation. Plus, if you didn't have the certificate, they could persecute you, imprison you, and if they decided to, they could martyr you. So there was enormous pressure to go, well... I can sprinkle a little incense. I'll just call him Lord with my lips, but I won't mean it with my heart. So I can survive. Most of this church said, no way. Jesus is Lord and only Lord. I'm not going to do that. So when they refused to worship Caesar, Rome took aim on him. The third kind of persecution is they had persecution by pagan people in general. Remember that Smyrna was heavily polytheistic. Polytheistic means many gods. They had lots of gods. Here's the problem. You were free to worship many gods. 
you were free to worship any gods. You were not free to worship only one god. You had to worship all of them or a part of them, but you could not worship one and reject the rest. That was intolerable. And our culture today, you are free to spout almost anything as long as it is considered tolerant. The problem with Christians in our culture, and we are headed for in more and more focused persecution as we live out our faith in this particular culture, is this culture is intolerant of truth. This culture is intolerant of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, right? This culture hates that because this culture is deceived, right? Anyone without light, without the Holy Spirit, is deceived. We are not to be angry with them. We are to pray for them. We are to love them. They're lost. And such were some of you, yes? You were lost before you were found by Jesus, right? We have a culture that needs the gospel desperately. Now, it wasn't just the Romans and the pagans that were persecuting them. They were also subjected to very intense religious persecution. Jesus said, there was the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. They were under intense pressure from the Jews. Remember, the Jewish leadership hated Jesus. The Jewish leadership had crucified Jesus, and of course they hated Jesus' followers. This commentary should send chills up and down your spine because the glorified king of kings says the Jews that are persecuting his body belong to who? Belong to Satan. Belong to the gathering of Satan. When the Jews rejected their Messiah, they became as satanic as any pagan cult there ever was. As a matter of fact, Jesus had told the Pharisees what? You are of your father the devil. He is a liar and the father of lies, right? So you behave like he does. Anything that opposes the person and work of Jesus Christ has satanic origins. We know that. Now, how did the Jews attack the Christians? It says they used blasphemy. The word blasphemy means to slander with your words. It means to speak against. This was not new. Anytime Paul planted the new church, who came after it? The Judaizers, the Jewish leadership who hated the church, who hated Jesus, who hated Paul, always came after, tried to destroy the church via slander, via mob action, etc., etc. At Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, at Thessalonica, etc. At Smyrna... They slandered the Jews by accusing them of cannibalism. They said, you eat the body and blood of Christ, right? You must be cannibals. I mean, you're eating body and blood, right? I mean, how would you do this, right? We, 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 obviously, there was an intentional misrepresentation. They accused them of lust. At that point in time, the church had agape feasts. They were fellowship times. They were food and fellowship. Do we do food and fellowship? If you have enough food, you'll probably do fellowship, right? You'll be in an altered state of consciousness because of sugar overload. It's great. You ought to try something. I kid you not. You know, a little diabetes here and there. I mean, come on, you know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So that they accused the church of, of, of orgies. They said, you have these love feasts. You people are out of control, right? They accused the church of home wrecking. Because when one person comes to Jesus and the spouse didn't come to Christ, what happened? Division in the home. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. You must love me more than father or mother, spouse, children, etc., etc. They said, you people are home wreckers. You're dividing families. Well, Jesus is dividing families. He said, you are atheists. You're atheists because you don't worship the emperor. 
And by the way, you have no pagan images in your religious ceremonies, so you must be atheist because everybody who worships has to have an image, right? Or multiple images. So they accused him of atheism. They also accused him of rebellion because they refused to worship Caesar. So the goal was to poison, of course, the minds of the Gentiles against the Christians. Now, they're under tribulation, they're under pressure, and they're very, very poor, and Jesus says what to them? But you are rich. Jesus said this persecuted church was rich. They're barely able to keep body and soul together. They're destitute. They're poverty-stricken. They're barely able to stay alive, and he calls them rich. How can he say that? How are they rich? Closer to Jesus? Can you be physically impoverished and spiritually wealthy? Many times that combination is a reliable formula. Because spiritual prosperity a lot of times doesn't go with material prosperity. There's nothing wrong with material prosperity. right? Wealth is neutral. It's your heart that matters. But we're going to find out the church of Laodicea was very, very, very materially wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. Right? They were rich. This church was rich in spiritual treasure. Holiness, love, grace, peace, godly friends, a savior who loved them, eternal purpose, um, a home that was guaranteed, an eternal home that was guaranteed. They were rich in resources that would last forever. You've ever heard the old saying, if you have no money, you're poor. If all you have is money, you're bankrupt. And yet our culture measures wealth how? Material. If all you have is money, you're bankrupt. Here's a question. Rob's got it on the screen. How rich would you be if the only thing to measure was spiritual treasure? How rich would you be if we looked at your net worth not in dollars and cents, but in spiritual treasure? That would be an interesting equation. Pastor Roger talked this morning about foundation work. How many of you are in the service? If you haven't gone, put it on your calendar to get there at 11 o'clock this morning. This puppy, you need to hear. You need to hear this sermon. House upon the rock, house upon the sand. We know the story. Most people do not do foundation work until when? The flood knocks their house over. I was talking to Kathy and Debbie just beforehand. The our, our entire culture builds the house where? In the creek bed. The whole culture is built in the creek bed. This church is in the middle of a creek bed called the Roman Empire. And they're being persecuted because they're staying faithful at that point. The church of Smyrna teaches this. You can be materially bankrupt and spiritually rich. All right? So Jesus now tells them his plans for their future. <clears throat> How many of you have ever got a spiritual little tract for four spiritual laws? How does it say? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and that plan includes suffering. Did you get that tract? Did you get the one that says, and that plan includes suffering and pain, right? And, yeah, you got the, yeah, the fifth one, yeah, yeah. You didn't get that one either. Just the answer is a full disclosure. <clears throat> See, we think a wonderful plan means pleasure and comfort and ease and problem solved, right? Wrong. It is a wonderful plan. But a wonderful plan includes what God knows you need. And do you know what kind of people you would be if it always was easy and wealthy? 
probably not as godly as you are now. We wouldn't right? need him. We wouldn't need to cry out to him. Yes, yes. Until D-Day. Everybody on their deathbed, if they get a deathbed, sooner or later has to face that. Verse 10. He says, I'm going to tell you what your future is going to hold, church. This is a church that's already suffering. And Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's predicting the future. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be what? Underline that word in your Bible. And you will have, underline this word, tribulation for 10 days. Here's the admonition. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now the word do not fear literally translates fear nothing. Fear nothing. This is a command, not a suggestion. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, doesn't want you to fear a man. He doesn't want you to fear Satan. He doesn't want you to fear people. He doesn't want you to fear the Supreme Court. He doesn't want you to fear persecution. He doesn't want you to fear death. Who does he want you to fear? Him. Him. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. <clears throat> Biblical perspective only comes when you take your eyes off circumstances and focus them on Jesus. See, what is biblical fear? We go, well, I'm in terror of God. That's, that the world says that. Biblical fear is reverential awe and obedient worship of the King of Kings. Here's the principle. When you fear God correctly, you will not fear anything else, including death. Some of us are going to struggle with that one. When you fear God correctly, you will not fear anything else, including death. It's been said that procrastination is the thief of time. Is that true? Try this one on. Fear is the thief of peace. Fear is the thief of your peace. Fear is not only thief, fear is idolatry. You know why fear is idolatry? Because it exalts something other than Jesus above Jesus. Whatever you are fearing now, you have exalted above Jesus. And by the way, it doesn't mean I'm going to go play with snakes. I get it. You're healthy fear. But if fear is controlling your life, then that something is on the throne above Jesus. That's a diagnostic question. Take a look at the things in your life that you are afraid of and say, is there anything in my life that God is not in control of? If there's anything in my life that God is not in control of, then you have a legitimate reason for fear. But since God is in control of everything in your life, why do you choose to be afraid? Because you're focusing on that circumstance, and when you focus on it, you elevate it above Jesus Christ himself. Fear is not only the thief of peace, it's idolatry. I know that's a big challenge, because we have a whole culture that is normalized living in fear. And by the way, I'll just put this out there. You can dispute it later. One of my jobs is to stir you up a little bit, and hopefully you'll dispute what I say. One of the functions of human government is to keep you in fear so that you will trust the messianic state to meet your needs. That is idolatry as well. We have a culture that worships at the altar of the messianic state because they do not worship at the altar of the messiah. If they worship at the altar of the Messiah, you do not need to live in fear. Does that make sense? So when you're looking at things that bother you at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake you up and keep you awake, Jesus Christ is not on the throne at that point. That's a time of surrender. That's a time of saying, Lord, 
you are in control of this thing, whatever it is. It could be an upcoming diagnosis. It could be a job issue. It could be a family issue. There's nothing in your life that God is not in control of. I know. I want you to be bothered with this. I want you to call me up and go, I can't believe you said that. We'll go back to the Word and find out what God says. Write this down. Psalm 5611. Psalm 5611. In God I have put my trust. That's a choice. I will not be afraid. It doesn't say I will not be afraid and so I will trust God. It says first I put my trust in God and therefore I will not be afraid. Write this one down. Philippians 4. Philippians 4. This is the Lord of the church talking to you. He says, be anxious for some things. Only the big things. What's he say? Be anxious over your children when they're not following you. Be anxious over your health. What does it say? Be anxious for nothing. Is that a command or a suggestion? Jesus Christ never makes suggestions. He only gives commands. Be anxious for nothing, but what to do with your anxiety? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, by the way, that means thank God for the problems, thank God for the problems because they draw you close to Him, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the outcome when you do that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, which means you can't rationally understand it, you just experience it, will do what? Garrison, guard, umpire, rule your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you got anxiety and it's bothering you, understand the peace of God is not ruling in your life. So write down 50, Psalm 5611, Philippians 4. Jesus says, suffering is in your future, and by the way, do not fear. And you go, whoa, 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 am I suffering enough? It's going to get worse. But do not fear. The Lord of the church is talking to you and me. When I am afraid, write this down, when I am afraid, it means I am choosing to trust in something else more than Jesus. The command to fear not is always based on two things. The presence of Jesus Christ in your life and the power of Jesus Christ in your life. When every time Jesus says, not every time, I think the word fear not shows up 300 plus times in Scripture, it is always based on the presence and power of God in your life at this point in time. What do you hear all over Scripture? Fear not, for I am with you. With you. With you at that point. Okay? The reality is that he who was dead and has come back to life has conquered death itself, which is our greatest fear, so why are we afraid? Jesus is telling the Smyrna church there is nothing to fear. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't say what you might suffer. He doesn't say, don't worry about possible problems in the future. He says, it's certain. I'm going to allow suffering to happen in your life. One of the things I love about Jesus Christ is he never sugarcoats reality. God never encourages his people based on anything less than reality. Amen? He tells you straight up, here's what it is. I know you have cancer. I'm Lord of your cancer. I know you have heartbreak. I know you have financial. Whatever it is, I'm Lord of that. Trust me. They had a date with suffering on the calendar, and the road ahead for them was not happy trails. Believe me, it was the trail of trouble and trial and tribulation. God's will for them was that they were going to suffer, not for doing wrong. God's will was that they were going to suffer for doing right. And the source of their suffering was what? Read the next phrase. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold who? The devil is going to cast some of you into prison. The word devil, diabolos, literally means to cast an accusation, to throw an accusation with the intent to bring down. Satan is called the accuser, the slanderer. He accuses the brethren regularly. 
What does Satan do according to Peter? He prowls around like a tabby cat seeking to eat a mouse. What does he do? Prowls around like what? Like a roaring lion looking to what? Devour you, right? You have to remember that this lion is on God's leash. Right? Is Satan on God's leash? Yes, he's on God's leash. I can hear some of you say, could you shorten the leash up a little? God says, I'm going to loosen Satan's leash a little bit, church. I'm going to let him put some of you in prison. It is my will to allow him to do that. Remember Luke 22, 32? Jesus tells Peter, right? Satan has requested permission at the throne of God to sift you like wheat. You know what you do when you sift wheat? You crush it. We just talked about that, right? To separate the seed from the shell. You crush it. Satan said, like he did with Job, God, give me permission to crush Peter. And you know, I'm sure Peter said, well, you told him no, of course, right? <laughs> right? I mean, of course you did. You told Satan no way, right? Jesus said, no, I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. In other words, Peter, I'm granting Satan the right to attack you, and your faith muscle is going to get stretched so far that if you don't have divine intervention, it's going to break. It's going to disintegrate. And I know some of us in this room have had circumstances in the last year or two where we've said, um, of course, Lord, you told Satan no, right? <laughs> right? I can't believe you would let that leash out where I could come in contact with him. God has a plan in everything. Peter, I'm sure, was stunned. I'm sure this church was too. Jesus said, your faith is going to get stretched by a date with a Roman prison. By the way, prison in Rome was not a long-term proposition. Prison in the Roman Empire, you were held there until one of four things occurred. You got exonerated fairly infrequently. You got fined fairly infrequently. Or you were exiled or you were executed. They didn't have any 20-year prison sentences. It was a temporary detention center until a sentence could be carried out. It was a very brutal place of torture, hunger, and pain. For most Christians in Smyrna, prison was the way station to martyrdom. When it says you're going to prison, it means you're going to go to death. The prison is just a way to death. Now, what does he say? The devil is going to cast some. Some didn't go to prison. Some didn't. But some did. And what's the purpose of the tribulation? Cast some of you in prison that you may be what? That you may be tested. The purpose of prison was tested. Here's the principle. Tribulation and testing can strengthen your faith and purify your life. By the way, notice the key word, can. It's not guaranteed. Trials can make you bitter or better. Your choice how you submit to it. Now, there's two ways the tribulation and testing can strengthen you. Sometimes God puts us in resistance training. How many of you lift weights? Right? Sometimes this is like a barbell. It strengthens your faith like a barbell. You have resistance and resistance and resistance and persecution. It keeps pushing you back. So you get strengthened steadily like a barbell resistance training. Or sometimes God purifies and purges your life like a blowtorch. Right? The purpose of a blowtorch is to heat something up to separate out the impurities. I like a pure life, but the price tag on that is often pain and heat. Yes? We understand that. 
This class is an experienced class. Satan will always attack you with the goal of getting you to renounce Jesus. Remember that Satan's goal is always to separate you from Jesus so he can isolate you and then he can destroy you at will. Always he wants to separate you from Jesus. He tried to do that with Job and failed. Job's faith got stronger. Paul's faith got stronger. And so can yours. He says you will have tribulation for how long? What does that mean? I think it means 10 days. I've read more interpretations of this 10 days. There's 10 emperors who persecuted their church. There's 10 ways of persecution that lasted from about 95 to 313 BC. I mean, there's a lot of different interpretations. When you read the book of Revelation, understand that the vast majority of the time when numbers are used, they're literal numbers, right? How many of you believe God has no problem communicating with his people, right? How many of you believe that God says what he means and means what he says? The vast majority of the time, this is just the basic principle of interpretation, the plain text says what it means. You don't have to invent interpretations for it. And there are symbols used in Revelation. We said this a month ago. The symbols are explained for the vast majority of the time at that point. So numbers are quite literal. When Jesus says 10 days, he probably means 10 literal days. But it's a very intense 10-day period. A lot of people were going to be martyred at that point in time. Some would suffer, some would die. Now here's the good news. All testing and all trials are temporary. They just seem like they last forever, right? You know the longest your suffering is going to last? Your life. Until you go home? Yeah, the rest of your life. That's as long as it's going to last. You know the good news is? It's not very long. It's not very long. Folks, you only get six, seven, eight decades on the planet. That's not nothing. Sorry, not nothing, man. In eternal time frame. It ain't no big deal, as they say, right? It's your lifetime. The problem is we want God to bring heaven down here and no suffering and no pain and all goodies down here. And we still want to keep our will and our sin and all that, and we still want no consequences. And you know something? That's not going to happen. God knows what we need. God has a wonderful plan for your life, and it involves some testing. That's part of the wonderful plan. Write it down. Expect it. It's going to happen. For some of you, it's going to happen this afternoon. Some of you, maybe this week. It's okay. There's no storm in your life that God doesn't allow to happen. Right? He knows. He loves you. He's your first love. Back to the first part of this chapter. Now, he said, be faithful unto death. Interestingly, that Smyrna had a reputation for intense faithfulness to Rome. Their, their loyalty was just legendary. That's why they'd done the emperor worship thing. Here's the, here's the interesting sidebar. Jesus is telling them, if pagan Smyrna, if the city of pagan Smyrna can be so loyal to the Roman emperor that's obviously of just the man, you should be able to be faithful to me as your Lord and eternal Savior. Yes? If people can exhibit earthly loyalty and earthly faithfulness, can we not do the same for our King of Kings? We should. We should. And he says, by the way, I am the Lord of life and of death. I've already conquered death. If you are faithful unto death, so fear of death is not controlling you, what's he going to do for you? I will give you the crown of life. I don't believe this is a literal crown, although there's lots of crowns in Revelation. We're going to get to a lot of crowns and a lot of thrones here before we're done with this in the next six months. But the crown of life literally means eternal life. It is the gift of, of God, eternal life. The crown is a culmination point. 
It's, it's, it's an end point. It's an honor point, the culmination of life. You know what eternal life is? Together forever with Jesus. Together forever with Jesus. You and I with Jesus forever. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All right, verse 11. Here's the final admonition. This shows up in every single one of these letters, the first three in one order, the last four in another letter order. He says, he who has an ear... Last week we talked about most of you have at least one ear that works, right? Some of you are in deaf in one, so you can hear with the other. But if you have two ears, it really, really applies. He who has at least one ear, do what? Let him hear. Now in Scripture we said last week, hearing always has an intent to obey what you hear, to act in accordance with what you have heard. So Jesus is telling his church, you have ears to hear, I've just spoken. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches with an intent to obey. All right? Jesus is doing the talking, but the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of what Jesus said every day, who illuminates the words of Jesus so we can understand them, because the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Then there's another promise. He who overcomes, what's the promise for the overcomer? Shall not be hurt by the second death. Who's the overcomer? We are. First John, we went through that last week. Anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God shall have life through His name. You're overcoming. You're overcome. Your faith will overcome. So outside the rapture, everyone will experience the first death. What's the first death? First death is physical death. What's, what's death? Death is separation. Physical death is separation of what? The body and the spirit. The spirit goes home with Jesus. The body goes into the ground. That's the first death. What's the second death? Second death is separation from God forever. This is post-last judgment, post-great white throne, when everyone gets rendered according to their deeds. By the way, you will never go to the great white throne. That's only for unbelievers at that point. But following the last judgment, everyone is going to um, be assigned a location, the believer in heaven. That's the eternal life. And the second death is the final separation from Jesus Christ and separated from God forever. By the way, and I don't want to get off on this, but we could spend a lot of time doing this. Everyone in hell chooses to be there. Everyone in hell chooses to be there. I find it so incredible to talk to people who say, well, of course I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus. Of course I'll be in heaven. And I'm going, you can't stand him now. Right? You don't want to spend any time with him today. How is it you think you're going to be able to stand heaven for eternity when you can't stand being with God's people for five minutes? You ever thought about that? People, you can't get them in church. You can't get them with other people. They don't want to associate with God's people. They hate the things of God, and yet they say, I'm going to spend eternity with God. Really? Oh, somehow I don't think that's going to wash, right? Okay. Those people need the Savior. Pray for them. Love them. Reach out to them. Because once there's the second death, there's no hope. Opportunity is over. All right. Some thoughts on suffering. This is the shortest of the passages written to the churches. This is the only church where Jesus has only good things to say about them. This church is pure and their faith is powerful because of the suffering they have endured. So when you experience suffering and trials and testing this week, and you will, that is a 
proof positive that Jesus loves you. Did you understand that? Who does God discipline? Only his children. So when God allows a trial in your life, when God allows a testing in your life, when God allows a relative in your life, for heaven's sakes, right? <laughs> Some of you have those, right? And they are truly tests because you can't even divorce them. They're your brother or your sister or whatever it happens to be. I mean, God says, you're going to live with this situation for the long term. And what do we do when we encounter tough times? We say, God, can you remove the tough time from me? And what will happen to your walk with Jesus if he removes the tough time for you and gives you peace and lightness and comfort and joy and health and wealth? There will be no more walk, or it will be a degraded walk. So the Lord in his infinite wisdom and infinite love says, I want to purify you and make you like me. I want to strengthen your faith. I want you to trust and depend on me. And in order for me to make you in my image, to make you like Jesus, I am going to not allow, I am going to arrange and engineer trials in your life. Because I love you. And for some of you, you go, I don't get it. But you do that with your children all the time. If all you give your kids is whatever they want, whenever they want, what do they grow up to be like? Yeah, not good, right? So the Lord understands that. All right, in summary, before uh, Darren comes up with prayer requests. First of all, Jesus understands suffering. He understands your suffering. He understands my suffering. He has conquered death, so trust him. How rich would you be if the only thing to measure was spiritual treasure? Take a look at your spiritual net worth. It's a good one. Here's the one that probably is the biggest challenge. When you fear God correctly, by the way, I almost put when you fear God biblically, and that's probably good so you understand a biblical concept of fear, you will not fear anything else including death, or maybe especially death, because he's the Lord of life and death. And the last one, tribulation and testing can strengthen your faith and purify your life. All right. This week, I promise you that some of you will run into some of these things. I'm going to encourage you to go back and read the church of Smyrna. Jesus loved this church. He loved this church because they were faithful unto death. Amen? Amen. So now that you know, go and do. And I do love you.